Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The New Statesman. Welcome back to China Under Xi, a special World Review podcast series from The New Statesman. I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs. Last week, we looked back at Xi Jinping's rise to power in 2012. In today's episode, The Party Leads Everything, we look at what Xi actually did with that power during his first decade in charge. How he took down his rivals, consolidated his personal control, and began to flex China's military might. But the heart of it, I think, is the sense that China today is much more powerful than it has ever been in the past 200 years. So if you have all that power, and if you have these core interests, then what use is that power if you can't exercise it? This week, I'm joined by Manoj Kewal-Ramani, chair of the Indo-Pacific Research Programme and a China Studies Fellow at the Takshashila Institution, as well as Diana Fu, Associate Professor at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto and author of Mobilizing Without the Masses, Control and Contention in China. This was not so much about corruption, right, as it was about purging his political rivals. We'll also hear more from Susan Shirk, author of the new book Overreach, How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise. Within the party elite, there's a lot of dissatisfaction with Xi Jinping and a frustration at his lack of sharing power with them. Now please join me in a warm applause to welcome the standing committee members. On the 15th of November 2012, Xi Jinping became the Chinese Communist Party's new leader. He led the other members of the top leadership committee out onto the red carpet inside the Great Hall of the People in Beijing, smiling and waving stiffly to the cameras. She apologized for being almost an hour late. Ladies and gentlemen, friends, good morning. Sorry to have kept you waiting. Then he laid out what he saw as the critical challenges facing the Communist Party. In the new environment, our party faces many severe challenges and there are many pressing problems within the party that need to be resolved. 
The problems among our party members and cadres of corruption, taking bribes, being out of touch with the people, undue emphasis on formalities and bureaucratism must be addressed with great effort. The whole party must be vigilant against them. To forge iron, he said, one must be strong. As soon as he secured power, he launched an anti-corruption campaign, which is basically hunting down enemies within the state. This is Diana Fu. This was not so much about corruption, right, as it was about purging his political rivals and his crackdown against the tigers and the flies, a phrase that refers to both the bigwigs and the lowly bureaucrats. Xi Jinping managed to remove Wang Yang, his greatest political rival at the time, as well as Zhou Yongkang, China's security czar at the time. And this anti-corruption campaign is ongoing. Um, most recently, we saw China's ex-justice minister, Fu Zhenghua, purged under corruption charges. And Fu was part of a clique of elites that were disloyal to Xi. And so Xi purged them just ahead of the party congress. China's former senior official Zhou Yongkang has been sentenced to life imprisonment for accepting bribes. Zhou Yongkang, the former security chief, had served on the standing committee alongside Xi until just two years before his arrest in 2014. By going after someone so senior, Xi was sending an important message, as Manoj Kalwaramani explains. In Zhou Yongkang's case, there were tremendous violations, of course, that existed. But I think the taking down of Zhou Yongkang was significant because it told you that Nobody, firstly, wherever you are in the hierarchy of power is necessarily safe. And secondly, for people who were within his coterie, who were within his clique in some way, they also there was a signal that, look, everybody would be sanitized. You would take out that entire set of people because at the end of the day, if you don't do that, uh, the nature of this Leninist system is such that if you leave a bit of the, and again, I'll quote uh, from their own views of how they talk about this, if you, do, if you leave some bit of the poison on the bones, it will become cancerous. So you're going to have to sanitize everything. And that's what this was. It was a case where you took out somebody who was very high up in the hierarchy, who was deeply connected in terms of his control on the internal security app, which is critical if you're wanting to control your rivals within that system. So taking out, taking him out was key from those two points. One, you were signaling against corruption. You were signaling that, you know, there were no no-go areas. Nobody was necessarily safe. Thirdly, you were systematically enhancing your control over the internal security apparatus, which would then subsequently be weaponized further in order to take out other political rivals. A post of photos showing Chinese President Xi Jinping having a meal at a local restaurant in Beijing has gone viral on Weibo. At first, Xi cultivated an image as a man of the people. In December 2013, Chinese state television reported on his surprise visit to a cafe selling steamed buns in Beijing. The president was snapped buying food this morning chatting with diners and without strict security surrounding him. There were popular songs about Xi Dada, or Uncle Xi, that were enthusiastically shared by the party's propaganda outlets. One of the most famous was a ballad about his marriage to the first lady, the Chinese singer Peng Liyuan, or as some began to call her, Peng Mama. But as she consolidated power during his first five years in office, that image began to change. Manoj Kawalramani again. 
initially, there was much more openness to talk about him and different aspects of his personality. I mean, I remember that very early, it was much more about Shijit being a, being a man of the people, being the sort of leader who would roll up his sleeves and get in the mud and do, sorts, do things. Also, at the same time, somebody who didn't mind dealing with hardship, he would be going to the sort of furthest army deployments and, you know, getting up in the camp with the soldiers despite it being difficult. Somebody who's come from hardship would experience the cultural revolution, the hardship and all of that. Some of that still sustains, but it's reduced. He's no longer sort of rolling up his sleeves and necessarily going into sort of the trenches with the armed forces. But also at the same time in the past, I remember 2013, 2014, there was a lot more openness to talk about his personal life. You know, the idea of Xi Jinping and Pang Liyuan and their love affair and, you know, him holding the umbrella for her while, he's, while they're walking. There was this famous song about their love, which sort of was very famous in China. All of that has vanished. But what we do have today is Xi Jinping sort of in the mold of a sage king. You know, the idea that he is, he's got this incredible sense of the world. He's got this incredible sense of history. He gets this, you know, that he's been able to look through the past and understand through Marxist viewpoints how history moves forward. He's got this tremendous foresight and insight into the world. And that's useful because, you know, if he's going to coin a thought after him, himself, he's, he needs to have all of that intellectual capital and intellectual might. And so that's one part of his personality. At the same time, there's this other part of the personality of somebody who is deeply steeped in Chinese culture, but not just Chinese culture, also the party's revolutionary history. I think he's used that quite effectively to carve out credentials for himself as somebody who deeply understands the nature of the party's revolutionary past and its revolutionary objectives in order to achieve the sort of society that you want to achieve this final abstract goal of communism. She also cracked down on Chinese civil society. Diana Fu. During the time that he was purging his political enemies within the state, Xi Jinping also turned to his enemies in society, namely civil society, which is Anything from critical journalists and media to grassroots non-governmental organizations to international NGOs, all of which were promoting liberal values. And these elements, these grassroots NGOs, they were always considered to be threatening to the CCP. But under Xi's first term, he was unequivocal about not tolerating them. And so there was a series of crackdowns between around 2013 to 2015 that really left Chinese grassroots civil society decimated. The repression only intensified during Xi's second term in power, which began in 2017. After mass protests in Hong Kong in 2019, he moved to crush the territory's remaining political freedoms with a new national security law. She also urged officials to strike hard in Xinjiang, the western region where more than a million Uyghur Muslims are thought to have been confined in internment camps. The United States and others accuse China of committing genocide. Diana Fu explains Xi's obsession with control, 
or what he calls stability maintenance. Xi Jinping, like his predecessors, emphasized social stability from the get-go. No matter if it's truck drivers protesting or Hong Kong youth taking to the streets or ethnic minorities, any protest involving masses of people is construed by official propaganda as turmoil or upheaval, dongluan in Chinese. And in the Chinese context, the only kind of social movements that are tolerated are the ones sponsored directly by the party itself or mobilized by the party itself. So Xi Jinping's approach, if I had to sum it up in terms of maintaining social stability, can be, can be characterized by three Ps, preemptive, proactive, and pervasive. So it's preemptive in that even before the so-called troublemakers can organize, the party state would employ patriotic education, training camps, surveillance to ensure that people are thinking the correct thoughts. And we, we, we can look no further than the training camps in Xinjiang. It's proactive in that the response to the outbreak of unrest is rapid and forceful. You know, just look to the response to the 2019 anti-extradition protests in Hong Kong. Not only was police sent out onto the streets to police protesters, but there were also subsequent attacks on pro-democratic politicians, civil society, and independent media. And then thirdly, it's pervasive, meaning that it's ubiquitous, in that social stability maintenance is not just a domestic issue. It goes beyond China's borders. So take the 2020 National Security Law of Hong Kong as an example. It targets anyone anywhere in the world. This includes Americans, Canadians, Australians, British, doesn't matter. Anyone who says or does something that may be construed as harming national security on Hong Kong is affected by this law. So consequently, under Xi Jinping's leadership, the party has ensured that stability maintenance is not just a domestic project, it's actually a global one. Coming up after the break what that meant for the region and the wider world. As a reminder, all three episodes of this series will be available on the World Review podcast feed and online at newstatesman.com forward slash podcasts. We're also offering a special discount on subscriptions to the New Statesman for listeners to this podcast. You can get 12 weeks for just £1 a week in the UK or $2 a week in the US by visiting newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including the historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search audio long reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. In September 2015, she presided over a vast military parade in Beijing's Tiananmen Square. The date marked the 70th anniversary of the end of the Second World War, but the real purpose seemed to be showing off China's growing military strength. For decades, Chinese leaders had abided by Deng Xiaoping's advice to keep a low profile in foreign policy, or as he put it, to hide our capacities and bide our time. But she took a different approach. Manoj Kewalramani. From a foreign policy perspective, I think like looking from India, it was very clear that at least from prior to Xi Jinping's arrival, there was a shift taking place within Chinese foreign policy with regard to at least India. In 2009, 2010, tensions had increased between India and China because there was repeated incursions along the boundary, but those incursions gradually became for longer durations. They became longer standoffs. I think it became much more assertive in the South China Sea. All of that predated him. But by the time he comes to power, it becomes quite clear that he sees this moment as a moment where China can and must do much more. Now, there's a question to be thought through as to whether these, this assertion, which has continued and become, in, in many cases, it has become aggression. I think assertion is no longer the case. Whether this is a product of anxiety or whether this is a product of confidence. When I say anxiety, I essentially mean the anxiety uh, as a product of intensified competition with the United States and opportunity as a product of a sense of the United States being fundamentally weaker than it was 15, 20 years ago and perhaps in terminal decline. But at the heart of it, I think is the sense that 
China today is much more powerful than it has ever been in the past 200 years. It has, its borders are much more secure than they have ever been in the past 200 years. And it is much more valuable and potentially an indispensable actor in terms of the global economy. So if you have all that power, and if you have these core interests, which are around territorial integrity, sovereignty, then what use is that power if you can't exercise it? And that's why we are seeing much more risk tolerance, much less risk averseness, which used to be the case in the past. So I think that shift from Hyderabad has been clear and has been is final. I don't think we're going back to anything of that nature. I think whatever we see in the future will be something different. She also launched his signature foreign policy project, the Belt and Road Initiative, which of course came with its own catchy propaganda songs. Manoj Kewal Ramani again. In 2019, when I visited China for a conference, I asked some of my Chinese colleagues, can you tell me what does BRI comprise? And they were very annoyed because they didn't really know what it comprised, (laughs) to the best of my understanding. You know, BRI in some ways, for the longest time, has been just about everything in Chinese foreign policy, right? Even uh, increased flight connectivity between two cities was classified as a component of BRI. But in the conventional sense, what we've seen is that BRI has been much more, uh, has meant much more Chinese spending and engagement in projects outside, outside of China, abroad. A lot of this money has gone into transportation, ports, connectivity projects, whether rail or road. Some of it has gone into manufacturing, but that's largely been the chunk of it. Some, a lot of it has gone to energy. So those are your sort of key sectors. Resources, transportation have been your sort of key parts of BRI investments. Along with that, of course, BRI has many other components ranging from policy connectivity, soft connectivity, and those sorts of things. To me, those have not necessarily progressed as much. I look at BRI as essentially China in some ways exporting its own developmental model and partly doing that export of developmental model in order to sustain its own developmental model at home because it's reached a limit, you know, supply side structural reform was something that was Xi Jinping's key reform agenda, which essentially meant that, look, We've invested in tremendous capacity on creating all these materials from steel to iron ore to all of these things. That sustains a large degree of employment at home. We are reaching a point where we don't need that capacity anymore. But if we shut down that capacity, we're going to end up with a lot of, you know, unemployment, lots of challenges of wastage of resources. So you're exporting part of that, you know, capacity that you've created to build infrastructure and carrier projects in third countries. So in in that sense, it was an export of that developmental model. You know, there's been lots of comparisons, a lot of flawed comparisons of BRI to the Marshall Plan, which it is not a lot of it to being this revival of this ancient Silk Road for trading, which it is not. So it's none of these, but it's essentially an export of the Chinese domestic model in order to sustain the Chinese domestic growth market. That model and China's future, she insisted, depended on the Communist Party's continued leadership and reasserting the party's role over all aspects of society, as Diana Fu explains. So in the previous party congress, the 19th Party Congress report, Xi Jinping has said a quote that has been widely quoted since because I think it really represents the spirit underlying all of the policies and campaigns, which is, he said, government, the military, society, and schools, North, South, East, and West, the party leads them all, right? So what does this mean? It means in the first two terms, it has meant that the strengthening of party building and party presence 
in pretty much all sectors of society, in businesses, nonprofit organizations, schools, neighborhoods, every institution in society must have a party cell. And this is, of course, to ensure that the party is instilling in people of all walks of life correct thinking and ideologies that would guide their work. And so this has permeated society in terms of there's formation of study groups that study Xi Jinping thought. There's apps that help people study Xi Jinping thought. So this is very much the underlying precept of Xi Jinping's rule is that CCP, the party, rules over all aspects of state and society. And this will remain the same regardless of the specific policies that are implemented. But while Chinese officials are now required to study Xi Jinping thought and praise his essential role as the core of the Communist Party, privately, some are concerned about the rise of another Mao-like figure. This is Susan Shirk. There are many party veterans who are horrified by the end of collective leadership and the return to one-man, strongman rule by Xi Jinping. And, and there are, of course, we don't know how many such critics there are. We don't know what the proportions of people who support Xi Jinping versus those who are very critical of the return to his arbitrary decision making and are critical of his misjudgments. We don't know that. But there are some survey results that suggest that even at the mass level, people are uncomfortable with the scrapping of the peaceful turnover of power at the top after two terms, which had been established by precedent by Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao. And And yet they feel powerless to do anything about it. Susan has followed Chinese politics for the last five decades. I asked her what she thought we were missing about the country's trajectory and its future under Xi Jinping. China has not always been as repressive as it is today. It's never been a free democratic society since 49. But still, the trajectory was moving toward a more greater liberalization for people. So understanding the historical trajectory, I think, is very important. The other thing is understanding the diversity inside China and not seeing it as a monolith. Right now, Xi Jinping's voice and the party media and propaganda are just drowning out everything else. But in fact, People have a lot of different points of view, and there are there's a growing middle class, and I think that middle class has values and dreams for their children that are really quite different from what Xi Jinping is promoting right now. And I do also believe that within the party elite, there's a lot of dissatisfaction with Xi Jinping and a frustration at his lack of sharing power with that. What I often say is, I can't tell you what will happen, but when it happens, I won't be surprised. 
Next week on episode three of China Under Xi. The longer you stay in power, the bigger a legacy you create, and the more need to defend that legacy. And then the only person you trust is actually yourself. Is she preparing to become chairman for life? You've been listening to China Under Xi, a special World Review podcast series from the New Statesman. This podcast was produced by Adrian Bradley and May Robson. I'm Katie Stallard in Washington D.C. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe, and maybe even leave us a nice review. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just sixty bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince—they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and three hundred sixty-five day returns. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.